Every forward outlook reminds us that all the highways of all research and all communication lead us onward to better methods of doing things. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast. I'm Austin Knight, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Howes-Barbie. Hey, Austin. Hey, everyone. Wow, what a couple of weeks it's been. We are deep in the middle of a bear market right now, and it hasn't always been easy to check in on those crypto prices. Thankfully, we have the World Cup to take our minds off it, and more importantly, a team in England to cheer on to the final. (laughs) I appreciate the optimism here because it has been a rough few weeks, especially for me, not having our American team in the World Cup. I I have no crypto left and I have no soccer team. Uh, But the good thing is that on this podcast, we're going to stay focused on what's really important, which is the technology and the projects that are moving this entire space forward. Exactly. And with that in mind, we have a really interesting guest on the show today. We're going to be speaking with Andrew Keyes from Consensus. He's one of those guys that you can plan to chat with for five minutes and then all of a sudden realize that you've been talking for two hours. So we're going to do our best to not make this a five-hour episode. (laughs) Yeah, we make zero promises there, though. And before we get into things, we do have a pretty cool announcement to make. We have just partnered up with CastBox which is one of the fastest growing podcast apps on Android and iOS, so that we can become a CastBox original show. What does this mean? Uh, Well, it means as a listener, we're gonna have more resources behind us to bring you even better guests, more episodes and higher quality audio. But at the same time, and more importantly, in amongst all of this, we're gonna be maintaining our stance of bias-free, hype-free information on all of the blockchain space. So in other words, don't worry, we're not going to suddenly start promoting a load of sketchy ICOs. (laughs) Yeah, except for our sketchy ICOs. So you have to go buy our tokens, right? (laughs) (laughs) That has always been our evil plan. (laughs) But in all seriousness, that has not been our evil plan. Just as a disclaimer here, (laughs) we we can assure you as a listener that we will not be straying away from the, the core values that we put in place when we first launched the podcast. So... It's also worth pointing out that with the CastBox partnership, we'll still be able to listen to the show through all of the major podcasting platforms. But if you haven't already, you can download the CastBox app for completely free on Android, iOS, and if you have an Echo, you can download it for your Amazon Echo device. So announcements to one side. Austin, what are we gonna be speaking to Andrew about today? Yeah, this is a pretty cool episode. I'm excited to get into it. We're going to be digging into what the future of the blockchain space could move toward, especially over the next five to 10 years. So what that means is that we'll be talking about the new jobs that blockchain technology will open up and the existing ones that it might disrupt. Perhaps a little bit of a painful conversation there, (laughs) as well as the tokenization of assets and why Andrew believes that smart contracts are going to fundamentally change the world. Wow, I am pumped. Should we get going? Let's do it. Andrew, welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you very much, Matt and Austin. Uh, It is my pleasure to be here. Why don't you start off by giving our listeners an overview of who you are and how you got involved in the crypto space? Sure. So long story short, I'm a recovering investment banker. 
And <laughs> I, I worked at kind of the intersection of finance and technology. But what really actually drove me into the crypto space was about seven or eight years ago, I started a company that dealt in the electronic medical record database uh, field. So mm. basically, we gave away free software to hospitals and medical practices that we as a company would process their insurance claims. And while that sounds wildly boring, what it <laughs> what what it actually It didn't sound boring at all, Andrew. <laughs> okay, well 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 I learned everything that was wrong with legacy database systems and payment systems. And at the same time Bitcoin happened. And Bitcoin was this kind of funky experiment in monetary theory. And it, and it, and it proved that, that, that we could transfer value without an intermediary, but it lacked the ability to do so with what I would call arbitrarily complex business logic, what we now consider smart contracts. So basically, I couldn't send if a certain condition was met and you know for very simplified example kind of an if then else statement you know if you go to the doctor then uh, you can issue a payment else payment fails so i understood the potential in decentralizing technologies but didn't professionally get involved until i saw the evolution of what I, I consider kind of the killer app, which, which are smart contracts. And I was lucky enough to go to the first ever Ethereum meetup in New York City, like a complete nerd. Wow. And there I met a gentleman by the name of Joseph Lubin, who was one of the co-founders of the Ethereum project. And this was before the Ethereum project had launched and he was driving initiatives at the Ethereum Foundation at that point and was considering starting a new company, Consensus. And, and I asked if I could help. And basically we had grown Consensus from a handful of us to now there's about 950 people on 35 different countries. Oh, wow. So what year would that have been when you and Joseph first met then? So that was end of 2014, uh, summer of 2014. Okay, cool. So it's fair to say you've you've seen quite a lot happen and develop over the, the past few years within this space, especially with Ethereum coming up right around the time that you, you started getting involved, right? It has by far been the most interesting thing I've ever done in my life. It has been absolutely mind-blowing to see how our social, economic, financial, political operating systems, when we really look at them from a 5,000 foot overview, are, are, are agreements and they're contracts and they embed legalese or, or verbiage and encumber different types of assets. And when we start thinking about what we're doing is basically creating the ability to digitize assets and the ability to kind of optimize the way we as humans agree with each other via smart contracts, 
it's mind-blowing to see what the future will hold. Yeah, and the future is something we want to dig into quite a bit within this interview, especially where you were talking about the digitization of assets. But before we get into that, you mentioned joining Consensus. Why don't you just give us a quick overview of what Consensus focuses on? Sure. So, so, so in its most simplistic form, I believe that Consensus operates across four pillars of activity. The first pillar is software engineering product. Consensus builds software. And in that pillar of product engineering, we consider ourselves a full stack engineering shop. So our stack is composed of a protocol layer, a developer tool layer, a open source standard layer, and then an application layer if you were to define the consensus stack. So at the protocol layer, we maintained three of the eight implementations of the Ethereum protocol. We believe that it is the most expressive implementation of a blockchain to date. And we believe it has the strongest network effect of engineers. And we also believe that it is flexible in so much that we can have private permissioned implementations similar to intranets and public permissionless implementations similar to internet. So when you hear about kind of uh, some of the debate on should a, a use case be in a private uh, blockchain versus a public blockchain, Ethereum is really the only one that has a smart contract functionality and B the potential to be in private or in a permissionless public standard. So above the, that protocol layer, we have developer tools. So it, it may for, for, for the engineers, they have to build actual software and we create developer tools to make that building easier. So the most downloaded interactive developer environment that's used to create smart contracts is called Truffle. It's an open source gift to the world that we've created. We also have something called Kaleido, which acts as a blockchain, as a service scaffolding. We also have Infura, which handles 9 billion requests per day, which is a load balancer, kind of like an Akamai for blockchains. Mm. Above the developer tools, we have open source standards. So things like a token standard. We, we've all heard about the ERC-20 token standard. When we digitize assets, they use this specific standard. We helped in creating that. There are identity standards, reputation standards, registry standards, token exchange standards. There are protocol standards. And for, for the technology historians in the world, Java, which is arguably the most popular computing language in the world really propelled itself because of standards. It had clean web APIs and clean database APIs. And that's really what attracted developers to Java. And similarly, we believe in creating standards that engineers don't have to recreate the wheel and they can use over and over and over again. And then above that, we have the application layer. And the application layer, we run in what we call a venture studio model. So there are other venture studios that are famous like Betaworks or Techstars or 500 Startups. And they basically 
benefit from economies of scale and economies of scope. So basically we can incubate an idea into a project, into a product, into its own separate company that could actually spin out of consensus and the entrepreneurs could benefit from our marketing, our legal, our accounting, our health insurance, and, and, and also from learning from the other projects and, and, and creating essentially an operating system, if you will. So that was a very long-winded, and, and I'll get shorter, <laughs> example of our first pillar of product. Our second pillar, to go a bit quicker, is enterprise and government consulting. Our clients include Microsoft, JP Morgan, Santander, British Petroleum, Procter & Gamble, the Emirate of Dubai, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, where we educate businesses and governments on what distributed ledger technology is and help them elucidate use cases and scale them from proofs of concepts into production environments. Third is our education arm named Consensus Academy, where we create curriculum to teach engineers, project managers, MBAs, lawyers about what is the blockchain, how to create actual software with respect to this new computing language. So the, the, the most popular uh, computing language for Ethereum is called Solidity. Mm -hmm. So we have different classes on Solidity and we can have it applied to things like law. So, you know, what is a smart contract and is a smart contract legally binding? And we've, we've created kind of continuing legal education for universities and law firms as an example. And then lastly is capital. And basically capital is our constellation of financial services. And that ranges anywhere from some of our exchanges that, that we've helped create like AirSwap or Omega One or LeapIt to custody solutions for custodying these new digital assets, our custody solutions called Trustology, to our venture arm where we do venture investments, to our token issuance arm named Token Foundry, to our asset management arm that we are developing now where we'll, we'll actually be able to create investments in time. It's a whole lot of arms that you got going yeah, on. It's a lot, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a big, confusing, <laughs> interesting whirlwind is it uh is it fair to say andrew then to, to, to simplify this down the consensus is really focused on kind of the enablement of development within the ethereum platform and the facilitation of the kind of widespread use of the ethereum kind of blockchain and application layer above it so I, I, I think that is fair. I think that, you know, w one thing that we, we typically are thought of as uh, an Ethereum shop. And I think that pragmatically, if we saw better blockchain solutions or better distributed ledger technology than Ethereum, we could and would pivot. We haven't seen anything better. And we think that there is such a strong network effect going on right now. So we do permeate that technology. That being said, I think that Ethereum is actually one aspect of really what we're trying to 
create, which is the decentralized worldwide web. So there are other aspects to that stack. So Ethereum, you could consider as kind of the business logic smart contract layer. Then I think we need to talk about things like decentralized file storage. So a lot of our engineers use the interplanetary file system or IPFS. Mm -hmm. Some are using Swarm while that's kind of in its infancy. I think that there's also decentralized peer-to-peer -peer messaging. So obviously there's kind of the signals, the telegrams of the world. I think yep. one that's very interesting is based out of London, which is an open source protocol named Matrix, which Status, which is a messaging application invested in, which, which we are following pretty closely. I think that there also has to be mesh networking. So I think that Ethereum is one aspect of really what we're going for, which is a decentralized worldwide web that we believe will help smoothen out the Gini coefficient of planet Earth. Because we think that right now you have 83 human beings that have the same net worth as the bottom 3.5 billion human beings in the world. If, if there are 7 billion people, 83 people have the same wealth as 3.5. And, and, and I'd argue that Many of those people uh, represent or own companies that get paid for providing thin layers of trust and intermediation. And that's what this technology essentially commoditizes. It, it commoditizes our agreements, it commoditizes the need for trust and intermediation. And that's what's exciting to me. For sure. Yeah, I think it, it seems like from a lot of the things that you've mentioned there, especially around the decentralization of the current state of the web, whether that be through file storage, messaging, a lot of this sentiment is coming not only from huge levels of security breaches that we've seen in the past from most of our traditional current web services that, that offer those platforms, but the rising amount of control that even if you take a look at right like Facebook and their ownership of WhatsApp, Messenger, and now really Instagram going into the messaging space as well, there is a clear sentiment and need for, or at least a push for really the first time in a long time for decentralization amongst those apps. And you, you mentioned Ethereum really being the thing that you see facilitating a lot of that. It, are you of the view right now that Ethereum is kind of the one and only? I, I feel like Bitcoin is obviously very different from Ethereum. But So I, I would say that Ethereum by far, in my opinion, is the most expressive and strongest smart contract business logic layer to the stack. So I think that you could talk about competition in terms of things like IBM's Fabric or R3's Corda. And I think in, in today's configuration, what they remind me of are intranets, private permissioned, essentially databases. And where Ethereum has the ability to have those private permissioned configurations as well as the public permission lists. So intranet as well as internet. And more importantly, Ethereum has a crypto economic incentive behind it where thousands of engineers have a few ether 
and are incentivized to potentially use it. That being said, there are definitely new business logic, smart contract layer blockchains being created. One of recent is EOS. I think that EOS speaks for itself in its trilemma. Basically, you're solving for scalability, security, and decentralization. And I think that Ethereum will be hyperscalable within a year, but in its present configuration, it is not as scalable, but what it is, is it's decentralized. And we've already seen at the gate with EOS, where these centralized block producers are able to essentially freeze accounts, freeze networks. And I think that's antithetical to what this decentralized technology is. So I haven't seen anything extremely interesting that's actually out running in the wild uh, that has any type of network effect to compete with Ethereum at this point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, EOS has had so much controversy surrounding it right now, right? With Block One, the parent company, generating what four billion dollars in that ICO, largest of all time. They, I think, they went live, and yeah, they've had a lot of controversy around the freezing of accounts, questions around is it actually truly decentralized, and we're seeing more and more of this uh, around the ICO space, which could almost be argued that with Ethereum and the ERC-20 token standard, right? It's almost what saw the huge spike in ICOs happening. How how do you feel about the current state of fundraising in the space through ICOs? So to be completely honest, I believe that planet Earth has had a little bit of token fever and is starting to rationalize a bit. I think what we did last year is we saw you know one of the first of many killer apps to come which was essentially the decentralization of venture capital you know traditionally there has been about 10 to 20 players in a small area of sand hill road in menlo park in palo alto california obviously there's some in london and some in new york and the world is round but you could say you know overall you could take look at you know the, the the top 100 vcs and you know 75 percent of them are within you know 10 square miles in new york london and northern california and those were like gatekeepers and what we've seen was we as a society created a mechanism whereby those gatekeepers weren't necessary and the companies went peer-to-peer where they actually created a behavioral economic incentive for the users of their application to invest and purchase tokens. And I think that was great that we didn't need those middlemen of the venture capitalists. And I think that we essentially took a bit of fat out of the system. That being said, we are still in a gray area. We are still in a wild west. We are still in a learning stage of what the tokenization of assets are. So you can tokenize equity in a company and that probably should be a registered security versus tokenizing a software license or a utility in a network 
And that may not have to be a security. And I think that consensus has tried to create best practices around defining what the difference between a security token is versus a consumer utility token and creating best practices around ensuring that the people that are acquiring these tokens understand what they are acquiring. Because I do think very similar to from 1996 to 2006, 85% of dot coms went to zero. And yeah. at the application layer, we're, we're witnessing, you know, the internet evolve from this internet of communication to this internet of assets, where we're actually going to be able to move assets as easily as we send emails and all that being well and good at the application layer. I do think that 85% of these applications will similarly fail. And mm. And I think it's important to note the consumer protections that are needed involved with these tokens. And I think that people need to know if they're buying a security that you know they expect to appreciate versus if they're buying something like an electron that they could use to potentially heat their house because now you can tokenize anything. So, yeah. so, so, so I think that there's still a lot of regulatory compliance that, that needs to occur. But I think that we are seeing best practices emerge in the ecosystem. Yeah. And I think regulation in particular is something that's almost become a dirty word within the, the crypto space. And I, I, I'm personally of the, the opinion that regulation is there ultimately in its purest form. Okay. Let's, let's take away the, the motives behind certain regulation that can be put in place, but largely to protect investors, right? And when we're seeing this dynamic shift from having to be an accredited investor, for example, in the US to invest in a security or largely the, the burden of investment being taken on by traditional venture capital firms, like this now comes to the end person, right? Like the- Gets to Main Street. Yeah. And the, what, we're, what we're seeing is like consumers ultimately taking on huge amounts of risk. And I think last year, we had a, a fever now, and almost ironically, we're now seeing a lot of the traditional venture capital firms. I think Andreessen Horowitz just announced that they're launching their their crypto arm uh, coming into the space for, for venture. But it almost seemed to me like last year, people were very quick to criticize regulation. But like you say, there's going to be a lot of people that will lose a hell of a lot of money. And these aren't people that are necessarily in a position where they have wealth that's been verified to fall back on. Amen. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And I also think that in order for the big boys and girls, uh, the actual institutions to be involved in this space, there has to be regulation. So I think it's a necessary aspect of growth. Some people may not like it uh, as much as kind of the volatility of the Wild West. But I think <laughs> As this industry matures and as it becomes really part of the fabric of everyday societal, economic, political, and financial operating systems, there has to be regulation. And I think that what we're seeing is a balanced approach where regulators are learning. You know, the Bank of England has a sandbox, the CFTC has a sandbox, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority and the 
SEC have sandboxes all in these different jurisdictions to really wrap their heads around what this technology's implications are. And, and I think that that's really encouraging because on the other side is no country wants to lose the next generation of the internet. I think uh, you want that type of growth and you want those types of businesses in your jurisdiction. You want that tax revenue. So I think that jurisdictions have to balance between consumer protections and not thwarting innovation. Yeah, and it's a it's a tight walk to walk, right? I want to touch on one of the pieces that you you, you glazed over there in amongst some of that, and that was around tokenization. So, I listened to you talk at South by Southwest earlier on this year, and I I found the talk really really interesting. It was all focused around moving towards a place where everything is tokenized, and in particular, I remember something along the lines of where you said that we would see land, property, stocks, bonds, all the way through to even milk and eggs being tokenized. Could could you explain to our listeners what what exactly you mean by that and its impact on the world? Sure, sure. So so I think that there's really three fundamental upgrades that we're going to see to our internet. The first one as, as you rightly said, is the tokenization or the digitization of assets. With these next generation distributed ledgers and blockchains or databases or internet structures, you can kind of look at a blockchain as the next generation of the database. One key aspect is that we're able to stop what's called the double spend. So if I were to send you an email it would be okay for me to send a CC of that email to Austin because we're just communicating with each other. If I were to send you money, it would not be good for me to send that same money at the same time to Austin. And that was really the seminal learning from Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, stopping the double spent. And how that was done was the establishment through public and private key pairings of the creation of digital tokens and those digital tokens being completely unique and in many cases fungible, meaning like interoperable. And what I believe we are starting to see is the digitization of all assets and what we have now, and, and we somewhat take it for granted, is that our assets are typically held by some type of third party. If it's a stock, we typically have a, a custodian. You know, State Street or Bank of New York is, is famous for being a custodial bank, or we have the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation that basically clears and settles if somebody sells a stock from counterparty A to counterparty B. Or if we have a house, we have a escrow agent that while the money is clearing from counterparty A to B, we have this document, this paper deed, where we represent the ownership of that, of that asset. Or if we have a supply chain, we, 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 can, we can show the asset's provenance, so the chain of custody or the authenticity of the asset. 
what we're seeing in the future is rather than those third parties, we're going to be able to have these distributed ledgers that can maintain the chain of custody, the authenticity, and the abundance of any asset. And with token standards, like the ERC-20 token standard, we can create a token and that token can represent anything from an electron in a solar panel to a maybe a QR code that's around the neck of livestock to a British pound or a Singaporean dollar. And, and as we evolve to these digital forms of asset ownership and recording that don't need third parties to verify the ownership because we can show them across these digital ledgers, we create the thawing of liquidity, which I think is really the golden era that our world is about to go into. You can take a building and you could imagine the ownership of the building being 100 digital tokens. And every time, if there's, let's say, 100 apartments in that building, every time the rent is paid every month, the rent could get paid directly to the owners of those tokens. And then more, more interestingly, if 100 people owned that building, if one person wanted to sell one 100th, there could be a secondary market for, for that token. And you could change the, the custody and you could prove the provenance, so the chain of custody, who owned it beforehand, and you could prove the income per token. That creates a new form of liquidity and, and, and creates a faster velocity of money. This, this is the piece of tokenization that I, I find most fascinating is around the ability to take what is ultimately a non-liquid asset, something like land, property, and create liquidity where it didn't exist. And I, and I think like one of these pieces in particular, alongside like being able to trace like the origins, verify ownership, but like, this isn't actually necessarily a new concept. We, we've seen this all the way from like, the days of barter, right? You wanted to trade rice for meat. You needed to, if you had rice, you had to find someone who needed rice, but also swapped for meat. And then currency came in and everybody needed money. So immediately you could create liquidity and trading coins instead of actual assets. And now we're seeing a similar thing, but on a whole new scale where, like what you say with, if it's equity in a business, right? You, which you could trade for a private business, on a secondary market right now, it's a non-liquid asset. Tokenized immediately becomes liquid. It can facilitate trade. And like what you were mentioning with property, right? It's divisibility as well. You can immediately divide up an asset that traditionally wouldn't necessarily be easy to divide up. I find that particularly fascinating with all of this space. I completely agree. I, th I think the challenge is gonna be regulating a lot of this stuff. <laughs> Oh yeah, it, it, it's a whole new world, and, and and the problem is is that the regulators, many of them, don't know computer science. They are Microsoft Word document kind of guys and gals, uh, not <laughs> JavaScript or Solidity guys and gals. So there is a huge learning gap because all of the younger people that understand this are trying to either build businesses or 
build software rather than necessarily build regulation. So uh, yeah. I think there is going to be a bit of a learning curve. Yeah, it seems like that's a big talking point in the legal space in particular, where I've heard a lot of talk around this particularly relevant for smart contracts on Ethereum is like Ethereum and smart contracts are going to get rid of the need for lawyers, which I don't know is said is necessarily true because someone still needs to write those smart contracts. But do you see that being almost whole new, not only like ecosystems, but skills that are going to be required for people in some of these fields where they're going to need to be this kind of pseudo developer slash legal professional and real estate agent, etc. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the intersection of kind of Juris Doctorate and computer science will be the most sought after professional credential in the entrepreneurship and business world uh, for, for the next 10 years. If, if people understand how agreements and how computer science work, I feel like they will be head above their competitors within a space. Super interesting. I'm really excited to see how some of these uh, spaces develop and the new roles that come up within them. One final question, and this is something we ask most of our guests that come on the show. What do you see as being the biggest adoption hurdles for cryptocurrency over the coming five years? And do you have any thoughts on how we might solve them? Sure. So 2018 in blockchain years, in my opinion, is the equivalent of 1994 when dial-up internet started in 1996. I think there are four main hurdles that we have to overcome uh, to really propel this ecosystem. The first, we've already touched on it, it's regulatory and engineering education. We have to teach the regulators what this technology does. We have to teach the engineers how this technology works. Second is standards. As I touched on before, Java became J2EE, Java 2 Enterprise Edition, when it had clean web APIs and clean database APIs. And engineers from India to, to the United Kingdom to San Francisco all could use the same common standards. And similarly, we need to create many different standards for everywhere from how protocols work to how tokens work, to how token wallets work and exchanges work and how identity as a standard works. Next, we have to have scalability. Right now, what we're sacrificing for this new ability of trustlessness is scalability. So you could have a system where it's owned by a centralized authority that could provide the trust and and that could be maybe American Express and that company will do 30,000 transactions per second and charge 2% or 3% to be a trusted payment provider or you could have the ability to do a peer-to-peer -peer transfer of value uh, achieve the same payment but you could do it trustlessly. And today, these new trust machines called blockchains are limited in their scalability. So uh, we saw with EOS that they gave up 
the notion of decentralization in order to have a higher transactional throughput. I don't think that's the right move. I think that Ethereum, for example, is implementing multiple different versions of scalability. So the first one are what are called state channels. An example of a state channel is if I took you to the pub and I first off gave the bartender my credit card and then I bought us each a round of drinks and I bought us each an appetizer, bought us each a lunch and bought us each a dessert. Each one of those rounds, if you will, could be batched off chain. And then when I close the tab, that would be closed back on chain. So basically the opening and the closing of the tab is on chain and you can have thousands of microtransactions off chain. So that's one scalability upgrade. And would one of the big benefits there be that we're paying less transaction fees uh, within that for the end consumer? Absolutely. So we're paying less transaction fees. We have less bloat on chain and we are still achieving that same type of trust, but we're batching the transactions. So another one is what's called sharding, where instead of every node of the blockchain having to form consensus or to agree on the state of the database, only a shard or you know a small percentage would have to come to agreement. So that will increase transactional throughput. Another is the transition from proof of work which involves mining to proof of stake, which is a depository process where you can essentially stake assets and be a benevolent actor to validate transactions in the system. And then lastly is a solution that was created by Joseph Poon and Vitalik Buterin. Joseph Poon created the Lightning Network for Bitcoin, and that's called Plasma. And basically that's the idea of having kind of different layers of blockchains on top of each other, where you could see like Ethereum, similar to like a Supreme Court at the base layer. And then you could have a federal court, a state court, a city court on top of it. So basically maybe you only settle things at the end of the day on the Ethereum mainnet, and then you have kind of faster side chains that are on top. And to be completely frank, those are the smartest people in the world, and it's a little bit above my pay grade. <laughs> but, so, <laughs> but, but so we've got standards, we've got scalability, we have education, and the last one is privacy. So what we've seen in the last year or two is the prevalence of a field of cryptography called zero-knowledge proofs. Zero-knowledge proofs have actually been around for 20 years, but uh, I, I, I think I'd credit Zuko Wilcox and the Zcash team for making zero-knowledge proofs cool. And <laughs> we're seeing, in addition to those zero-knowledge proofs, there are different ways to have privacy and confidentiality, whether it's maybe having a permissioned blockchain or using hardware to privatize transactions. So there's a difference between privacy and confidentiality, but it all kind of revolves around kind of the security of data and authorizing or ensuring that who's supposed to be able to access the data actually can. So, you know, there may be transactions where you need two counterparties and a regulator, and that's it. There may be transactions like maybe like a nonprofit business that wants to show all of their data to the world, 
of, you know, where the money comes in and where it goes. And I think that that's a great example where there are going to be businesses that are going to be fully transparent. And I think nonprofits are a great place to start, or they're going to be quote unquote dark nonprofits that don't show and don't disclose their financials, for example. And then you'll see that, you know, maybe nonprofit A has 99% of it actually gets to the beneficiaries that it's trying to help, where nonprofit B either doesn't show their financials, or we see that, wow, there's a lot of middle management people that are getting paid, and only 50% is getting to the beneficiaries that are intended for that nonprofit. So what I would say is kind of a configurable privacy or confidentiality um, that's according to the use case. So I think overall, you've got education for builders of businesses and 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 software and regulators. You've got privacy, you've got scalability, and there was one other I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was super interesting. I feel like we could chat about this all day. Um, unfortunately, we, we have to wrap things up, but I just want to say uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Before we sign things off, why don't you let our audience know uh, where they can find you, whether it's Twitter or email or whatever. Sure. My Twitter is at ConsensusAndrew. Uh, you can reach me at andrew.keys at consensus.net, and I'd be happy to participate in the Decrypting Crypto podcast because I think that the work that... Matthew and Austin are doing is super high quality and I'd be happy to participate again in the near future. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating talking with you. Appreciate you taking the time to catch up and Cheers. yeah, in- enjoy. Thank you. Enjoy the future. It's upon us. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show your appreciation to me and Austin, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or on your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure you download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can finally follow us on Twitter at The Coin Offering. Lastly, but not leastly, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. The Decrypting Crypto podcast is a CastBox original show, and its content should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.